0: Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. I the truth. You can't handle the truth, where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Hey, everyone. Welcome in. We are in week uh, two of our study in Acts. And man, this is just going to be a fun series in Acts itself because we're doing things a little different. We have, instead of one episode with a uh, special guest, we're going to have multiple and uh, just riveting conversations. Actually, we should also say we have some great episodes as well coming up uh, where we might do two episodes in a week. So just pay attention to that. We normally launch on Tuesdays, but there there might be weeks where we have a Tuesday and a Thursday launch, right? Isn't that the, the plan, yep, Rob?
1: That's right. Cool. And they're going to be really cool conversations.
0: So as we continue on from last week, we, we started talking about how in the early church, there wasn't necessarily a distinction between the Jews and the Christians christians were jewish there were people following israel's messiah they were they were doing what they believed was the fulfillment of what god had promised but we do see uh some anti-jewish or what we would call anti-semitic bigotry that does happen later on Mm -hmm. uh but what what might we want to explore when we do look at that topic of uh you know now a a church versus jewish way of thinking yeah we just need
1: to, to make note of the fact that at the time of the New Testament, we don't look at the New Testament writers or speakers or Jesus or Peter or Paul as being anti-Semitic, even though they come out with these strong denunciations of the Jewish people, they're criticizing their own tribe. We are Jews, we follow Jesus, the Messiah, the fulfillment of the Jewish prophets and the Jewish scriptures. However, when you do get the formal break, which is second century and later on, anti-Semitism does become a real thing in the church. And I think we need to acknowledge that and own that because anti-Semitism, has probably has a greater history in the church than it does anywhere else. Mm-hmm. And so I think we want, we just want to acknowledge that before we move forward to yeah, kind absolutely. of finish off last week's conversation.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So as we jump into the beginning of acts, we, we have this introduction that th- Luke makes a Theophilus, and then we immediately see Jesus and th- this precedes his ascension, but th- the disciples are asking him, it's like, it's like, they almost don't get it with everything they've experienced, but they're like, Lord, is this the time you are going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus, his response is interesting. It's, it, it doesn't, you know, it, it's, I, I always read this with a tone, like he's blowing them off. Like mm. you guys don't get it. <laughs> right. uh, but is that what's happening here?
1: Yeah. Let's look at the passage itself a little bit more carefully. Acts chapter one, the disciples get together. Jesus has been showing themselves for 40, 40 days. What's going on? They ask in verse six, Lord, is it at this time that you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said, you know, it's not for you to know. The times of the epics was the father was fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You'll be my witnesses in both Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. So this passage has caused some misunderstanding and distinctions within the Christian church, especially today. So John Calvin said there are as many mistakes in the question as there are words you know are you going to establish your kingdom at this time lord or not not uh, to israel the problem is this when the disciples are saying restore they're thinking of a political territorial kingdom they're thinking of are you going to restore the kingdom of of david the kingdom of solomon to israel at this time and then when they say israel they mean a nationalistic kingdom now it's very popular and maybe the dispensational circles if someone knows what that means it's the They typically interpret the Bible more literalistically. They commonly believe in a seven-year tribulation, not always. They believe in most of them are premillennialists, which means they believe that Jesus is going to come back and then establish a thousand-year reign on the earth. So that popular end-times theology that that I know you and I were kind of raised in that group, Mm -hmm. uh, that's become very prevalent. That camp often says that the disciples say, are you going to restore the kingdom now? And Jesus' answer is, I'm not telling you when. It's going to be a couple thousand years. Just stay here in Jerusalem. It'll happen in the future. And he's blowing them off by saying, no, not not now. I read the text, and many others do. And the text is difficult, even in the Greek, to kind of nuance and say, well, the Greek prefers this or prefers that. You can kind of make the Greek do kind of dance both ways. But I read the text as Jesus is saying, look, I'm not telling you when, but just hang in Jerusalem for a little bit. It'll be soon. By the way, Peter Walker has written a wonderful book called Jerusalem Past and Present. And he says that the answer is surely to be taken as yes, but not in that way. Hmm. And what he means by that is yes, but not a political territorial kingdom for national Israel. Uh, The idea of that is, yeah, I'm going to restore the kingdom of Israel, but it's going to be the new Israel of God, which is Jews and Gentiles together. It's not going to be nationalistic because they're going to go into all the nations. It's not going to be territorial, but well, it's territorial in the sense that uh, it fills the entirety of the earth. And it's not political in the sense that it's a rival to the other kingdoms of the, of the nations. It's political in the sense that Jesus is the king, but his kingdom is not of this world. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the way we, we would look at it. So I think what Jesus is saying then is he's saying, well, I'm not gonna correct your misunderstandings right now of a political, territorial, nationalistic kingdom. I just want you to wait for the Holy Spirit to come. And the point of that is, is that the coming of the Holy Spirit is the sign of the coming of the kingdom. Mm-hmm. he can't be saying, wait 2000 years, not now, someday soon. He's simply saying, I'm not telling you when. It's going to be 10 days, but I'm not telling you that. I'm not, I'm not telling you when, but hang in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes. And when the Holy Spirit comes, that is the sign of the coming of the kingdom. I think that's one of the key things though. So uh, John Stott says, when God establishes the kingdom, he will pour out his spirit. He says, quote, the universal enjoyment of the spirit will be one of the major signs and blessings of his rule. And indeed, the spirit of God will make the rule of God a living and present reality to his people. So I think that's the first key that I would say is that the coming of the Holy Spirit is the sign of the coming of the kingdom of God.
0: And just to acknowledge presuppositions, especially that we would have from a popular standpoint, you had mentioned a dispensational reading, which if you don't, if you're not familiar with that word, this is just going to be the popular way we understand this in America, uh, how we view even things like Israel nowadays and, and in the New Testament, but the idea is not just the literalistic interpretation of scripture that you mentioned, which is, that's one of the hallmarks of that, that system of thought, but it's also that the church and Israel are separate and there's a definite future for Israel. And so if if you're reading like a passage, like, uh, you know, acts one through a dispensational lens, you're, you have to read it in terms of saying, yeah, this is going to be part of a future political thing. That's going to happen. Like you mentioned with the seven year tribulation in which, times a, you know, the antichrist is going to make a peace treaty with Israel, but then break it in the middle. And and it's all that kind of stuff.
1: And you have to think that because you believe that a territorial nationalistic kingdom Mm -hmm. for the people of Israel is what's promised and what's, what has to happen to which I'd say, well, yes, but the fulfillment transcends that
0: that would make sense just in general, in terms of how we see Jesus engaging. Yes. I'm I'm even thinking during the passion week where he's continually asked about his kingdom. And it's just like, man, it just doesn't look like what you guys think a kingdom looks like.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But it's better. It's greater. Mm -hmm. So it is a territorial political nationalistic kingdom, but it's beyond that. As I said, it's the land becomes the whole earth. So it Mm -hmm. expands the people become all Jews and Gentiles all. Well, as Jesus said, my mother, my brother, and my sisters are those who do the will of my father who is in heaven. He redefines the family and the people of God. And it's political, but in the way that Christ reigns, as we've been talking a lot on these podcasts, the way that Jesus reigns and does power is not the way the kingdoms of the world do power. So it's not like, oh, well, that didn't happen. It has to happen this way. It's like, folks, the promises of a restored future temple don't happen in the sense of a little, a literal building with blocks of wood and laid out with gold it's jesus's body it's jesus Mm -hmm. so it transcends this and of course jesus is the presence of god seen by many so i think we can just go on and on and on if you look in fact at verse six and most of your translations will use something like the word so actually let me uh, bring up the translations here i can look at it now acts chapter one verse six so so esv says so net bible says so niv says so uh so new king james says therefore the greek says therefore mm. so what's happening then is jesus says look wait verse four wait until you don't leave jerusalem wait for what the father promised which you have heard from me for john baptized with the water but he will baptize you'll be baptized with the holy spirit not many days from now therefore when they had come together they were asking him are you going to restore the kingdom of, of god to israel at this time and it was the therefore says that the promise of the kingdom and the promise of the Holy Spirit, which Jesus has just given to them in verses three, uh, he's speaking of the kingdom, verse four, the promise of the coming of the Holy, four and five, the promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit. The disciples go, oh, well, therefore, is that when you're gonna restore the kingdom? And it's just like, well, wait a little while until the Holy Spirit comes. I'm just not telling you when the Holy Spirit comes. Mm-hmm. So, And again, I totally understand the fact that that verse is unclear and ambiguous and it could really be read both ways. I just think that when you read the totality of the, of the New Testament message, you're going. There's no question the kingdom of God has come in Jesus. There's no question that the coming of the Holy Spirit is this presence of the kingdom now. We are kings and priests in that kingdom now. All the promises to Israel in the scriptures, which we'll look at a few of them now, are fulfilled in Jesus and in the coming of the Holy Spirit. This is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. It's just as you mentioned. It's not what you were what you were expecting.
0: So then we just see Jesus giving this encounter to his disciples, he then ascends. And in chapters one and chapters two, this is when we see that the spirit poured out, mm-hmm. right? And this is where you have this connection of, oh, there's something happening now with the kingdom.
1: Yes. And it's essential. It's critical that we understand that coming of the Holy spirit in the context of the coming of the kingdom. So perhaps one of the best ways to do this is to look at Ezekiel chapter 37 So if you're kind of listening at home or wherever you might be, this is really significant. So if you have a few minutes, take some time, pause if you need to, and open up to Ezekiel chapter 37. Chapter 37 begins of Ezekiel with this vision of of these dry bones. And we're told that the dry bones represent the whole house of Israel. And we're told that these dry bones represent the whole house of Israel. And God appears to the prophet and says, hey, guess what? Can these bones live? This is verse three. Can these bones live? He's like, I don't know, God, you know. It's very common, by the way, that the prophet is asked a question that he doesn't know the answer to, which gives the speaker or God or the angel the opportunity to give him the answer. Well, here's what I want you to do. Prophesy over these bones and say, oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. That's verse four. Behold, I will cause breath to enter you that you may come to life. And the word for breath here is reminiscent of Genesis 2, verse seven, that God gave Adam the breath of life and he became a living being. Hmm. So I'm going to breathe on them. So let's skip down verse uh, uh, nine. He said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may come to life. And so I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them. Now, the word breath, of course, in Hebrew can mean spirit, can mean wind, can mean breath, just depends on the context. The point of that is it's the same word for the spirit. So I prophesied and he commanded me, and the breath came into them. And they came to life and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. And verse 11, Son of Man, the bones are the whole house of Israel. Now, the whole house of Israel means the northern tribes and the southern tribes. Mm -hmm. So at the time of Ezekiel, the northern tribes have been gone for almost 200 years, 150 years, 140 years. All that exists now is the southern tribes of Judah, Judah and Benjamin. So verse 14, I'll put my spirit within you and you will come to life. I'll place on you, I'll place you on your own land. Then you will know that I am the Lord who have spoken and have done it. So the word came to me and he said, verse 15. Now, put these two sticks together, then join them together. Make them one stick, verse 17. The point of that is this purpose of this text is to prophesy the restoration of Israel. If there's any text at all that leads to a physical, national, territorial, political restoration, this is it. Here it is. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna restore Israel. This is the promise I make to you. In the book of Ezekiel, chapter 37.
0: Okay, 22. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be over them all, and they shall no longer, and they shall be no longer two nations, and no longer divided into two kingdoms. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things, or with any of their transgressions. But I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have slit, uh, sinned, and will cleanse them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. And I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever.
1: Now, we're going to actually spend a measure of time expanding on this thought, but let me just quickly jump to 2 Corinthians 6 to kind of like give you what I think is kind of the cheat code here, the answer, Second Corinthians 6. And you can look at Revelation 21 also. Second mm-hmm. uh, Corinthians chapter 6. In Revelation chapter 21, this passage is also quoted. So Ezekiel 37 is actually quoting Leviticus 26. And if you get the chance to look it up, if you're listening at home, 20, Leviticus 26, 11 through 13. I will be your God and you'll be my mm-hmm. people and I will dwell with you and I'll walk in your midst and it'll be great. So when you go to Second Corinthians 6, you see Paul says, look, what relationship does a believer have with an unbeliever in verse 14 verse 15 what harmony is there between christ and belial between a believer and an unbeliever well what agreement verse 16 between the temple of god with, uh, with idols for we are the temple of loving god just as god said quote i will dwell on them and walk among them and i'll be their god and they shall be my people that's a quote from mm-hmm. ezekiel 37 and Paul quotes ezekiel 37 to say it's true for you in corinth Mm-hmm. You are the temple of the living God, just as Ezekiel said, and Leviticus, I'll be your God, you'll be my people, I'll dwell with them, and I'll walk among them. And again, the book of Revelation quotes this passage, Revelation 21, verses 3 and 7, Revelation 21, verses 3 and 7, it quotes the passage say, fulfilled in the new Jerusalem. So I would simply say, look, the promise of Ezekiel, which is very clear, it's a territorial kingdom applied to the nation of Israel, uh, David's going to be king over them. And it's going to be great i'm going to restore israel and judah it's going to be awesome and i'll be their god and they'll be my people paul says it's true it's applied to, to you guys it's fulfilled in you guys so let's kind of go back to a little bit more detail now so if we looked at ezekiel 37 and we didn't read every verse first thing it says is that all israel is going to be restored jews from all around the world are going to come together and be restored of course most notably in verses 15 to 22 this is ezekiel 37 15 through 22. It's going to be a reunification of the southern and northern tribes. Now, the key feature of this is going to be the giving of the Spirit to restore the people. And that's also in chapter 36, but 37, verse 14. The climax of it will be the reign of David, Ezekiel 37, verses 24 and 25. And then ultimately, the dwelling of God among his people, verses 30, 26 through 28. So, 37, verses 26 through 28, which again, Paul quotes to say that has been fulfilled in the church. So now, if you go to the book of Acts, guess what you have? Okay, let's go to Acts chapter 2 now. And this is Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. And it says there's a violent rushing wind that comes in, where they were sitting was filled, and the flames of fire, all, by the way, reminiscent of Sinai and the appearance before Moses. Sorry, they begin to speak in other tongues in verse 4. Verse 5, now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. There you go. Jews in Jerusalem... Mm-hmm devout men from every nation under heaven. And they began astonished because they all heard them speaking in his own language. It's verse six. Verse seven, they were amazed and astonished saying, why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? And look what happens. Verse nine, Parthians and Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts around Libya of, of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own tongue speaking of the mighty deeds of God. Now, by the way, one thing that's happening here is it's a reversal of Babel. Mm-hmm. In Babel, they were all Genesis speaking 11. different languages and they couldn't understand each other, and they were sent out and separated. In Acts two, they all come together from different languages, mm-hmm. but they all hear them speaking in the same, speaking in their language. So it's a reversal of Babel. But the fulfillment of now, God says, I'm going to pour out my spirit. That's Ezekiel 37. And so, of course, that's what he does. And there's Jews from every nation that are there. And most notably, if you were to look at actually the way Luke has done it is he's actually geographically said north, uh, west, um, south and east. He he actually it's geographically arranged. That's the order of the nations in, in verses 9 through 11 actually following around on a map.
0: So now let's go further. Real quick, uh, before you go further, what I have always found interesting in that, especially coming from uh, myself, coming from a dispensational Mm -hmm. background, we we look at these passages like in in Ezekiel 36 and 37 and whatnot, looking to see how this is obviously talking about a future literal restoration of Israel. Yet these are also the passages that are foreshadowing and, and declaring the new covenant. Like th- these are the passages that we go to oftentimes when we're looking at the Old Testament in terms of what Jesus is doing he didn't merely pop into the right. uh t- pop into the scene out of nowhere it's like this is where we go you look at a, a Jeremiah 31 you look at Ezekiel 36 37 and it's like like you said Paul is speaking as which as though this is this is fulfilled now right. uh it's so a why, why is it that you know it, this can be fulfilled now in Jesus yet it's still later specifically only for Israel
1: right right and so let me kind of and again, I too was raised as a dispensationalist and kind of grew up in that camp. So the dispensationalist camp often says we have these isolated verses here and there that are about Jesus. Mm-hmm. Isaiah 53, suffering servant, that's clearly Jesus. Psalm 2, okay, that's Jesus being coronated mm-hmm. as a king. Okay, no problem. Um, so, and we kind of isolate them. What I've come to recognize after years and years and years of study now is that the entire Old Testament's about Jesus. I mean, they're taking passages from everywhere. Mm-hmm. Jesus, of course, says in Luke 24, I think we addressed that, that the whole story is about me. Mm-hmm. And so we can't just pick and choose isolated verses, but because they're all, the whole thing's about Jesus. The next thing that I think what you're trying to say here is the fact that what Paul does or the New Testament writers do is they say, okay, look, this verse and this passage and this, pa- they're, they're pointing us to Jesus and they have this application in the now. And those verses that you're talking about, where Paul's quoting here and here and here, all have to do with this restoration of Israel language. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't make any sense that Paul would apply that now. We're going to look at a passage in, in Acts 15 here, for example. This passage makes no sense being fulfilled now because it describes a nationalistic fulfillment of Israel. So the only way it could be applied now at, in Acts 15 is if the passage's application or fulfillment was in the the formation of the New Testament people of God. Again, I hate mm-hmm. losing church in Israel language because it gets so yeah, confusing. Yeah. If you call the people of God, the people of God, then it's, they're all covered. And the, and it shows for the continuity, what we might say, Old Testament people of God or people of God before the kingdom of God, mm-hmm. and then New Testament people of God, the people of God afterwards. And that's why we finished our last session saying, hey, you really can't talk about Paul's conversion. It's his transformation because he was a member of the kingdom of God. He was just lost and Kind of persecuting the church not recognizing mm-hmm. that it was the fulfillment i don't think that's a conversion i think he's been transformed oh okay cool his heart was right he just was reading the scriptures wrong um would be kind of the way of looking at it there anyway and we could dispute that right, let's go to acts 15 now and look what i'm talking about acts 15 verses 16 to 18 all right 15 you want to read that verses 16 through, Oh, here let's get some context the context is paul and silas have gone out in the first missionary i'm sorry paul and barnabas have gone out in the first missionary journey They've gone through what we call um, the Southern Galatia, which is Southern Turkey, kind of central and Southern Turkey. And large number of Gentiles have become Christians. And this is problematic. And it's very, we discussed this on our last episode. What do you do now with these new Gentile converts? Some of the Jews are saying, well, they have to become Jews. They have to get circumcised, follow the food laws and follow the Sabbath keeping and all these things. They have to do all those things. And Paul, as we did mention last time with Peter, is saying, hey, look, guys, we did all this stuff. They felt the Holy Spirit fell on them before they were baptized, fell on them before they were circumcised. They're members of God's people. And for Paul, we'll see this in the book of Galatians. The big argument is if you say they have to become Jews first, you're making class of citizenship within the people of God. Mm-hmm. You're saying the Jewish ones are better and first, and then the Gentile ones who aren't circumcised, no, you're not even in yet. And it's making racial, well, I wouldn't say race, of course, it's uh, uh, anachronistic. I'd say um ethnic distinctions within the God's people that are unjustified, as Paul says mm-hmm. in Galatians 3. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, slavery, nor female nor female for all one in Christ Jesus. So they're having this debate. So Paul and Barnabas come down from uh, Antioch, they come to Jerusalem, Peter's there, James, the brother of Jesus, is the leader of the conference because James, the brother of John, was killed in Acts 12. Mm-hmm. James, the brother of Jesus, who's a Christian now, is respected amongst amongst the leadership and amongst the people. And There's this great. You have to understand. There's this great tension with the Jewish community. What do we do with these Christians because they're breaking our laws by eating with Gentiles? And so James finally steps up. They they hear all the testimonies. If you want to read verses one through twelve or thirteen, James finally stands up. Uh, Do you want to read any verses thirteen through um, eighteen? Yeah, thirteen through eighteen. Acts fifteen.
0: After they finished speaking, James replied, "Brothers, listen to me."
1: All right. Now he's quoting in verses uh, 16 through 18. James is quoting Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. Okay. Now Amos chapter 9 is about the restoration of Israel and the nations. It's a promise that what God was going to do for Israel after the exile—that is, Israel is going to be restored, it's going to be rebuilt, and then the nations are going to get converted. Now. Unless Israel's been restored, James can't use this passage. Mm-hmm. In other words, James is saying, well, because Israel's been restored, that's why the Gentiles are coming in. And so he uses it to explain, hey guys, these Gentiles are converting. This is what we were expecting. This is what Amos told us would happen. Mm-hmm. Israel will be restored. Look what it says, verse 16. After these things, I will return, and I being Yahweh, not Jesus' second coming. This is this is old testament context. So I'm going to return and I'm going to rebuild the tabernacle of David which has fallen. That's the resurrection of Jesus. Cause Jesus mm-hmm. is the temple of God. I rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. And then the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. Mm-hmm. James is saying, look, this passage is fulfilled now. And the only way it can be fulfilled now is if the tabernacle of David has been rebuilt and Israel has been restored. So I think this is one of those key texts. That really, uh, to be honest with that, I, I think it gives a lot of trouble for dispensationalists. So I don't think they can answer it well. They do have some answers, and maybe someday we'll have a dispensationalist on to kind of talk it through a little mm-hmm. bit um, yeah. and kind of give their perspective. But I think the answer is Amos 9 is about the restoration and of rebuilding of Israel, and then the nations are included. And then James cites this passage to say, that's why the Gentiles are included. Israel's been restored, and let's go on. So I, I think this is key understanding the fact that the coming of the spirit is the sign of the presence of the kingdom of God, which is the nation, the restoration of Israel. And again, that goes back to what we said in our, our last episode, one last thought. And that is, that's why this is such an inner Jewish debate. The Christians don't look at themselves as some new sect that are moving on. We're like, no, this is what the prophets said. This is what the scripture said. We're holding on to what the prophets have always said. You guys need to join us. So,
0: and then the and, and, and even there, like, I, I think from a, nomenclature standpoint oftentimes well-meaning christians will want to say like we're new testament christians yeah, yeah. sometimes just... they have a
1: book of psalms with their new testament though exactly you yeah, yeah, think it's
0: the gideons pass out bibles mm-hmm. oftentimes and yeah, it's the new yeah. testament with the psalms and the prophets right or right. some Psalm... no i wish it was psalms of prophets psalms and the proverbs yeah, yeah, uh, yeah and it's this idea that like it's this new thing that was starting and it, all you need to do is start in Matthew one or something like that. Mm-hmm. And it's like, no, Jesus's Bible, his identity was rooted in the, in the old Testament, the apostles, their identity was rooted in the old Testament. We cannot right. avoid ourselves from that. Right. And it would make sense that these sorts of controversies that come up, especially right. what you see in the Jerusalem council, it makes sense that you ask questions like, how Jewish must a Gentile be in order to Mm -hmm. follow the Jewish Messiah? If, if we are the ones with whom God made covenants with, like that, that's a practical question. We, we might want to look at them and say, how did you guys not get it? Haven't you read Paul yet? You know, like, like, you know, we we want to think anachronistically that way, but it's like, no, this is a legitimate thing. I would, if I, if I was living in that time, I would have been one of those guys wanting to, wanting to protect the boundaries and and everything we were doing. Like I would have been right there on that side of the equation. That's
1: right. Remember what Paul says in the book of Philippians, he says, according to, legalistic righteousness, I was faultless. Mm -hmm. I follow the Jewish law faultlessly. This is what I believe. What that means is Gentiles are unclean people and you can't eat with them Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and you can't fellowship with them. And when you have a narrative like that, so let's just say that's kind of our our narrative that our tribe is holding to, that those people out there are unclean, they eat the wrong foods. We're going to reinforce that narrative with, yeah, and look at all the things they do. When we have this uh, idea that my tribe is better than your tribe. We look at that and say, yeah, yeah. And look at, you did this, this, and this, we ignore some of the good things that you do. Mm -hmm. And we definitely lay hold of and exaggerate even if if necessary, the bad things that you do. So that just reinforces the narrative. So you have to recognize the fact that this narrative is really, really entrenched. Then you add the fact that, okay, grandma hasn't come over to our side yet. Mm -hmm. Grandma doesn't see, and mom doesn't see, and dad doesn't see, and and we're a communal people these family relations are really, really significant to me. And I'm trying to explain to them that it's okay to eat with Gentiles. And they're like, no. And if you do that, you can't come here for any of our holidays. And you're torn because your community is being torn. So you're losing everything that you've kind of known. You got to remember, these Christians are really, really going out on a limb here by welcoming Mm -hmm. Gentiles in and by doing the things that they're doing. And it's rupturing communities. So that's the trauma and the conflict that's going on there so it makes sense it totally does to say i'm not going to let go of that narrative that i've always held all of a sudden because oh someone says the holy spirit came and mm-hmm. that's why we discussed last time how hard it was peter's like word got to jerusalem before peter got to jerusalem but what you did in caesarea explain mm-hmm. yourself peter mm-hmm. so those are legitimate now when we come along and say okay yeah look guys this is this is the story it's a serious serious conflict and so we have to respect that And understand that and understand the significance and the gravity of what the early Christians were going through, at least on that front. And we'll talk later. I think we're going to have an interview with Kevin Rowe in a few weeks on what happens even more so when the Christians go into the Gentile cities, because it doesn't get any better.
0: Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening to the podcast. We really appreciate it, and hopefully it's blessing you. Do us a favor. If this is something that you are digging, if it's helping you, if it's uh, encouraging you, take a second just to like it. Give it a review. Give it you know five stars if you think it's five-star worthy. Uh, share it with your friends. And we just want to get this out to more people. Uh, this isn't something that we're in for the bucks, but it's something that we want to encourage and equip people with. So do that. Help us out. And now we'll get back to the podcast. All right, so bringing you back to... What we've already hinted out and talked about last week and this week, this makes the Holy Spirit uh, central to the life of the church, uh, or is just central to the life of the church and to the book of Acts. This is, yeah. we, we can't ignore him. It's not merely the acts of the apostles.
1: Right. The acts of Jesus through the Holy Spirit, through the apostles. Mm-hmm. So again, when we discussed the gospel of Luke, that's one of the first things that we said was the Holy Spirit is central to the story of Luke. And I think why Luke's been so impacted is because of the Pentecost event and what that meant. Now, remember Luke's Mm -hmm. Gentile. So he's, Hey, I'm, I'm pretty grateful that I don't have to get circumcised and do all these things to get in. So Luke is looking at this larger picture from the, from the beginning of the gospel of uh, Luke now, all the way through the book of Acts. So the Holy spirit, the first point then kind of to maybe finish off the conversation before, Hey Lord, are you going to restore Jerusalem at this time? And that's just like, well, yes, but I want you to wait and wait here until it happens. And I'm not telling you when it happens. Mm -hmm. Obviously that yes seems to be implied and others say, no, it's not happening. But I think what we just discussed, like, yeah, definitely it's going to happen. There's no doubt then that the book of Acts has a strong emphasis on the Holy Spirit. I think, I don't know about you Vinny, but my experience has been that Christians that are not Pentecostal are usually afraid of the Holy Spirit. Yes. And we discuss it little because we're afraid of the charismatics Mm -hmm. If we give them an inch, they're going to take a mile. (laughs) And they do take a mile. I'm just kidding. But um, (laughs) I think we do that to our own detriment.
0: I literally had this conversation with a group of folks who I lead uh, the other day, how in my tradition, which is going to be a reformed Baptist tradition, because we have such a strong emphasis on something like total depravity of the human Mm -hmm. being, we don't need the devil to be out there (laughs) because we're bad enough. We ignore... All aspects of spiritual anything, whether it's been a, a spiritual enemy or a spiritual helper, because uh, we tend to intellectualize things and we connect with God through, you know, our intellect and devotion. And, and, you know, that's what happens oftentimes in the reform tradition to the detriment of our own spiritual walk, you mm-hmm. know, ignoring the fact that, no, there is a God who leads us and speaks to us and uh, yeah. is very intangible as opposed to how we like to just read our, you know, classic books from our favorite scholars.
1: Right. If you look through the book of Acts then, what you'll see is the Holy Spirit's the one who grants repentance and the forgiveness Mm -hmm. of sins. He's the one that empowers them to be witnesses. He's the one that empowers them to prophesy. He's the one that empowers them to speak with boldness. And through the Holy Spirit, there's now this one people of God that we call the one, the New Testament people of God. And again, I don't like using language of church Israel because it's too confusing because it sounds like it's two different things. Mm -hmm. Israel's Old Testament. Now, first off, by the way, just to kind of finish that conversation, The word Israel has many meanings in the Bible. Mm -hmm. For one, it's a personal name, right? So Jacob has his name changed to Israel, he who wrestles with God. So the word Israel can apply to a particular individual. The word Israel can apply to the nation, but that nation isn't all necessarily ethnic Israelites. Mm -hmm. So it's not the Ishmaelites. It's not the Esau's descendants. As you keep going through the Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, you're kind of whittling out who it applies to. And then obviously it applies to the 12 tribes. But you also notice that Uriah the Hittite, was more of an Israelite than David was. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, you see Rahab, who's a Canaanite, she's more. She's righteous. You see Ruth, you see many people who are not physically ethnically Jews being included in this covenant family. In fact, by the way, the Exodus out of Egypt included a lot of Egyptians. Mm-hmm. So just the formation of the people and the people of Israel were formed in the wilderness. And that formation included a lot of Egyptians who left with them. So that's one of the problems that we have there. And then Paul goes on to say in Romans 9, 6, not all Israel are Israel. Mm-hmm. And he's distinguishing between, between those who are ethnically Israelites and those who are doing the work or the task of Israel, what God called being God's chosen people. And I don't like to say physically spiritual there. Then you go to the church and the reality is, well, not everyone in the church is of the church, mm-hmm. right? Not not everyone who says, I acknowledge Jesus as Lord when I was a kid. That doesn't make you a member of the people of God. And again, we got to be careful. I'm a member of the people of God. No, the whole idea is that we've been called by Christ out of his grace and chosen and granted this this status. So if we look at the idea of the people of God as that one title, then you can look at it in the Old Testament context of saying it's Israel. Not all of them are followers of Yahweh. Some of them are. You can look at it as, oh, people who claim to be the people of God today. Some of them are, some of them aren't. But there's continuity, and that's the whole point. And again, just to reiterate, most of the early Christians were Jewish. Mm -hmm. So you had this large... Group of Jewish Christians, especially in J- Jerusalem and Judea, that became Christians. And afterwards, eventually, maybe 100 years later or more, they began marrying Gentiles. And they're no longer ethnically Jewish, but technically, there's a lot of Jewish blood in them. I think if they did, a, you know, whatever that 23andMe or whatever it is, yeah. it shows your ethnicity. You say, hey, you guys come from Palestine or from Judea. So,
0: yep. Yeah. This is just so crucial to understanding how what was lost. At the fall in Genesis Mm -hmm. three, what was reinforced in, you know, all all throughout the first 11 chapters, I was at chapters three through 11 of Genesis climaxing in Babel, like you talked about. And then you just see the rest of the biblical narrative from, you know, Genesis 12, you know, up up to this point, you see a fallen world in which ethnicity is oftentimes the means by which people are divided up. The gospel changes that.
1: It's supposed to change that, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. And you see that in the ministry of Jesus, although it's predominantly amongst the Jewish people, where he's going to the tax collectors and he's going to the prostitutes and he's going to the the sinners and the woman with a bleeding problem and the lepers, all these who are excluded from being Israel proper. And Jesus is like, nope, come on in, Zacchaeus. I'm eating at your house today, buddy, come on in. And so that's a prelude to what's going to happen with the inclusion of the Gentiles, ultimately into this people also. And it becomes tragic then, when we in the church make these segregations and make these separations, as though this has been a problem. I think of Western Christianity because we've tied it with imperialism, that says we're going to go to these other nations and teach them about Jesus and about how to democracy and how to have a a right way of life and bring their standard of living up because they're poor and oppressed and don't have good education. We're going to give them all these things, and included in that package was this Christian package. Mm -hmm. So I think it's been very problematic. So if you go to the Book of Acts of course, the fulfillment of of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, he quotes Joel chapter 2. When the Holy Spirit descends in Acts chapter 2, Peter goes in and quotes Joel in verse 16. This is what the prophet Joel said. I'm going to pour out my spirit upon all mankind, or humanity. And your sons, this is verse 17, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, and I will in those days pour forth my spirit and they shall prophesy. And this, you just can't, you can't have these class distinctions within the church. They don't exist. And I think you see Galatians 3.28, neither Jew nor Gentile, slain nor female nor female for all one in Christ Jesus. Now, yeah, okay, you've got people that have been in ministry for not all these years and they're quote unquote elders or leaders or pastors, whatever. Sure, we give them um, a voice because they have education and everything else. But there's something to be said for the body of, of Christ, for all Christians having a voice, because they're all filled with the Holy Spirit. And I'm not, by the way, I don't, I, I know you're Baptist. I don't, I don't believe in the Baptist form of government because I don't think they should all have that equal voice. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they all need to have a voice, though, because they all have a Holy Spirit. And sometimes the leaders can get corrupt. And the voice of the congregation, the voice of the community should be able to speak up and be able to, be able, be able to have a voice. But I do think that there's a place for leadership in there, but that leadership is humility. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. I mean, this is how it works. It's this mutual submission of one to another.
0: So, it's not monolithic is what you're no. saying in terms of how leadership, and I, I completely no. agree with that. And I'm yeah. glad to be a part of a church that does not practice in that okay. way. Because okay. we, we often sometimes see that in our churches where you have your one s- supreme leader yeah. with everyone yep. else kind of below them in, in whatever kind of hierarchy. And it's like, oh, no, yeah, no, I- that's not the way you see early Christians even running their their communities
1: no and it's so dangerous yes to the community yes and to that leader because narcissism mm-hmm. is just going to be bred there yep. and that leader is going to go uh, awry and it's going to be harm to that to the, the followers for a number of reasons one is that you're not empowering the followers if we're mm-hmm. all filled with the holy spirit that means we all have a gift we'll get to the first yep. few things later we all have at least one gift and if we're not using those gifts then we're not functioning well as the church And so I think there's a lot to be said there. I think there's a lot to be said. This is my personal take. And I've I've blogged on this before and I'm not sure exactly where you're at. So that's fine there too. But I think that's also why it's so significant in my mind, the role of women being degraded or being diminished or or whatever. I think this is so serious because we say male superiority. It's like, Mm -hmm. even if you were to argue that that's what Genesis is saying, male superiority, which is, I don't think that's what, what it's saying there. Um, I think it's, it's saying there's going to be friction between male and female. You're going to try to rule each other. The male's going to dominate you. That's I'm not prescribing that. Mm. I'm just telling you that's what it's going to be. But in the New Testament, you get to where, guess what? I'm restoring the unity of Adam and Eve in the God's people. And they were one and didn't even know they were naked. And that's why I think John says, in uh, the gospel of John says, I pray that they may be one, even as yeah. we are one. It's, it's the restoration of the unity. So I think that's so significant. I think it's also important. We're going to talk about this. We're going to have some missionaries on in the, in the next few weeks. So we want to say, hey, when we take the book of Acts and the message of Acts out to the world, what does it look like? And what are the pros and cons of doing this or this or this? And what, what's good missions work and bad missions work? And what do you think about short-term missions program? We're going to have all those questions. I think it's going to be phenomenal. But so often we go in and say to these other cultures and say, we're better than you. Let me, I'm, I'm here to help. I'm here to show you the right way. And I think that can be dangerous.
0: Yeah, I, just from personal example, uh, I, I know that our my my church has had uh, for a while. We had some connections with some churches down in Jamaica, mm. and so we would send teams down there when we used to do short term mission trips. Mm-hmm. And it, it was interesting they'd come back and they'd say, "You go to Jamaica and like imagine the weather of Jamaica, where it's you know eight thousand percent humidity. And, mm-hmm. You know, you're here, here in the Caribbean in the islands, and the churches. While during the week you're wearing just normal clothes that you would wear in a you know, in that context, you get to Sunday, you have to wear a suit and tie. And now all of a sudden you have to use the King James Bible. You have to do things Uh. in a way that reflect 1950s white conservative. Some of those are terms that wouldn't necessarily apply to them, but we can look back on it and say that, but it's because you had missionaries who went down there in the yeah. early and mid 20th centuries. And they said, this is what Christianity looks like. Right. So you now get, you get a group of people who like, they would never live and talk in a certain kind of way, but they pray in King James English hmm. and like they wear clothes that you would never wear, but they think that that is now associated yeah. with, this is what it means yeah, to look God. Exactly. So,
1: so something that's impressed me and you know, that I've been working with pastors in India now for more than a year on zoom. And it's just, I see these people and their faith is incredible. It's mm. it's cr- so. One of the things I do is I I teach a group of pastors. About four different groups of pastors now, and I tell them at the beginning. I said, okay, I want one of you to give your testimony every time we meet. I want to hear your story, and I want everybody else in the room on the Zoom call to know your story too. And their stories are all, I prayed. Someone told me that you know my child would this would happen, and. Um, somebody came and told me about Jesus, and my child got well, and I, I began following mm. Jesus. And we're like, okay, that's kind of a weak reason to follow Jesus. That's that's their story, guys. And I look at it and go, it doesn't happen here because we just don't we just don't have the faith. Yeah, yeah. Every one of these guys' stories is like this, and I'm and I'm like, okay, you know, well, intellectually, that's just a bad basis to build your faith on. You want because if something <laughs> bad happens, you know, uh-huh. what are you going to do then? Or if, if somebody else has it, they don't get healed. That's just the way I think, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, oh, shame on me because I think this would happen so much more in our culture if we just had the faith that they had. So I think we can learn so much from them.
0: Well, and think about it. You, you hear that a lot, even when uh, it, it comes from it, during Ramadan, especially mm. when so many Christians around the world are playing, praying for Muslims who are fasting during this, mm-hmm. this holy month for them. And how often do you hear of Muslims who have dreams and yes, they, yeah, they have yeah. these it, it, you know experiences that way. And that is the means by which God is you know speaking to them. And I've never heard that maybe a couple times in my life yeah. uh, and I always chalk it up to, Oh, well, yeah, maybe God did that, but you probably just had pizza really late at night. Like I, I try to, you know, rationalize it away.
1: Yeah. yeah. Uh, I've got a great story. I won't tell it. Maybe I'll actually try to see if we can get the guy on for an interview where that hat is Muslim man. I was witnessing mm-hmm. to. And it, long story short, he called me up and said, I've got to get baptized tomorrow. I'm like, what? And he, cause he had rejected mm-hmm. baptism a few weeks ago. He was like, I'm not doing, I'm not doing, I'm not doing, you know? And then uh, I won't tell you the end of the story um i'll just gonna leave it hanging there what a it's cliffhanger a, it's a it's a one i'll tell you off, offline once we okay. <laughs> stop the audio so yeah. all right hey that's great thanks Vinny.
0: yeah good, good stuff so this is fun this is only week two of this <laughs> so many great things this is really going to be a fun series that we go and especially uh, we've already recorded one of these uh episodes with a, a missionary and, and yeah. we know the people one of the other guys so seriously great conversations just amazing oh, yeah. people around oh, the world right, yeah. and it's- yeah, it, it's some good fun. Stuff as far. yeah, Yeah, great yeah. stuff. So hope you guys continue on and, and share a couple of these too, especially Please. when it comes to those episodes with those testimonies and just getting the experience of people. Uh, this is going to be good stuff. So thanks everyone. We'll catch you guys later. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.